escape competition through authenticity. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sasson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Aaron Kubal. Aaron has been recommended by previous guest Mark Amick and was the author of a blog post, I Don't Need No Doctor. He's a chiropractor with the focus of patient-centered and evidence-based approach to practicing chiropractic. And we, we, we kind of, in this podcast, drew a lot of parallels between the world of chiropractic and the world of sports performance. And it, it was really cool to see kind of his approach, kind of the not the, the this not selling the poison, not giving the easy fix, teaching the person that they can heal themselves, as Dr. Tommy John likes to say, and giving them the ability to do this in the future, not pretending like we have magical fingers or magical programs or magical solutions, but being what you need for the person. And Aaron did a really, really cool job of explaining what he thinks it means to be a chiropractor, what he thinks it means to be a leader, what he thinks it means to be a doctor, and how he's going to start to implement these things with his clients. Hopefully, you guys get something out of this. Thank you guys for listening. All right, well, Aaron, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here today. Yeah, buddy. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, kind of uh, what you're doing right now, what you want to do, where you want to take this path and what's kind of led to it? Sure. I guess I'll just start off with what got me into Cairo land. Um, I grew up playing sports and I had a positive experience with Cairo in the past. Uh, just trying to stay healthy and stay on the field after various injuries. I didn't think a lot about it. I just knew that my mom would take me in and, you know, I'd get some work done and I'd feel better after and I'd keep playing. And then got more and more into sport as I got through high school, college, kept seeing chiropractors. Um, and I started thinking, wow, you know, I've really, it seems like I've really benefited from this. I'd like to be able to do this for others. So that's kind of how I got interested in the field. So up until that point, everything was really positive. Um, and then I started school and started to kind <clears> of <throat> see how the sausage gets made, so to speak. <laughs> and that was where things got kind of weird, I guess. I don't know. It's I just I'm the type of person who I'll go into anything as open minded as I can be um, and just see where it goes. But I nobody wants to be wrong. Um, so anything that I'm taking in that I'm eventually foreseeing myself putting out, I'm going to put it to the tests and, you know, put it up to the scientific standard that we should all kind of hold ourselves to in, in a healthcare field. And I kept doing that with everything I was learning. And I kept coming back really disappointed and really disheartened by a lot of our training, whether it was manipulation or clinical reasoning or um, manip manipulation. I mean like chiro adjusting, not like manipulating people, um, clinical reasoning, treatment, um, communication, basic sciences, and, and everything just kind of kept letting me down over and over and over again. Every time I try to appeal to, to the research and the literature, look at what the experts were saying. And it's, it was really discouraging. And then I hit a point about halfway through school where I thought, okay, I don't know that I can see myself making a career of this and be proud of that. That's how kind of bad it got for me. 
um, with what I was seeing as far as the things that I was going to be doing and how credible they were. So I didn't like that feeling. I was halfway through with a lot of money invested. So it was a really hard decision. Um, and luckily I had a faculty member who I still really trust a lot and has been a great help to me, put me on to some, um, some leaders within the field that I can follow and can give me a little bit of inspiration. One of which being Craig Liebenson, who we mentioned just beforehand. And I, I'm lucky enough to work closely with him now. And we, and we work on a lot of projects over the past year, but if it weren't for Craig and being introduced to the work that he does, um, within the field of chiropractic, I don't know that I would still be doing this or um, embarking on, on on kind of what's next for me. So now I just finished internship. My last day was actually yesterday. Ooh, congrats. Um, so th- thank you. Yeah, thank God for that. That's over. Um, and now it's on to I'm going to be starting up my practice in January. So uh, finally getting to a point where I will be allowing myself to do the things that I think I can be proud of which, which to me is really exciting. So I think right now is, uh, this is a good time to do this because I don't, I don't know if there's been a time in my chiropractic quote unquote career that I've had more energy than right now. So this is, this is a good time for this. I was going to say, this is almost like the perfect, like turn leaf, like new start, like you're ready to go. And I think this will be, we talked a little bit before the podcast, but this is like, this is day one almost of the new career. And like a year from now, after a full year of the chiropractic, full year of the thing, you'll be able to look back on this and be like, Oh, is that, is that really what I meant? Or how did I redefine that? What, like, what does that mean to me now? Right. Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully, like I said beforehand, I don't want it to be radically different because nobody wants to be just outright wrong, but I I hope it's sharper. Um, And, and I hope I can communicate ideas more clearly because I think that, with, with my first year in practice, I think that's my biggest mission is, is, is finding a way to, to really communicate and move closer to mastery and communication, not just on a uh, micro level from patient to patient, but also a macro level, because I care a lot about that. If you look at my, if you look at my Instagram bio, I wrote something along the lines of like, I, I, people, people deserve to know, um, how adaptable and resilient their bodies are. And I think that's kind of the cornerstone of what I'm trying to do because we as clinicians have access to this unbelievable body of literature that supports this narrative that like we're way more resilient and way more adaptable to stress and injury and pain uh, than, than we understand on a societal level. And people deserve to know that. And they don't like it's in like I, the amount of the amount of basic research that should be common knowledge for the clinician that I get to communicate to patients in my internship setting on a daily basis and see the eyebrow raise as if they've never heard that before. And it's so like, it sucks because I think everybody should know that. So for me, um, hammering communication in this first year, that's, that's such an exciting, exciting idea, not only face to face, but also through social media and as much as I can put out and communicate. So this is a good opportunity to do that as well. Well, that's something that, I mean, I talk about all the time is like you, you have these, like you said, it's like, we're almost tricking our athletes and we're tricking like humans in all aspects of their life to think they need to be bubble wrapped, you know, to think they need to be kind of like sheltered. They need to, that they're going to break they're, they're, they're mentally, physically, like they're just spiritually, they're, they're not made to last in this world. Like we're not going to survive <laughs> if we don't do this, if we don't have this help. And that's where you, you mentioned, like, you've got to see how the sausage is made. And I thought, I thought that was an interesting point and something I want to dive in a little bit with you is like, yeah. What was that? Like, what, 
when did you like you, you were just taking these classes like when was it the eye opener of like whoa like uh, why are we doing this like what, what what was that like eye opener of like why are we tricking people into thinking they're 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 fragile like why are we tricking people into thinking we need the doctors which is a little segue into later of what we'll talk about in your article but yeah. like what was that <clears throat> yeah. eye opener for you oh god um so you'll have to excuse me if i get rambly here and like throw your hands up so i can slow down at some point if i need to but uh i i do have a tendency to go you know mile deep inch wide on some of these so <clears throat> for me um man i you could look at it a lot of ways uh i would say where i drew the line i said enough is enough maybe just with with chiropractic adjusting and manipulation in the beginning because like i remember at the halfway point uh we were learning how to like palpate so palpating just touching people's backs and like determining where to place your adjustment where to put your thrust and and I was doing it and all of my classmates were doing it and everybody was acting like they knew, like, they're like, yeah, I can feel it. Like I can feel this is where they need it. This is the spot. And I was like looking around and I, I think I'm, I'm not an idiot, but like, I think I'm like fairly intelligent person. And I was like, guys, like, I can't figure this out. I can't, I don't feel what you guys are feeling. And on top of that, even if I did, that this rationale that like we're pounding down high spots and just like, I feel this here. So if I thrust here, they'll fix this. Like I just couldn't, that did not make sense to me, even on like a biological plausibility level. So I was like, I just started asking more questions and kind of peeling back the layers and saying, okay, well, can we even feel what we think we're feeling? Um, and then I don't, you know, there, we have a body of literature for that. Like this exists. These questions have been asked. It's not a novel thing. And when I realized that, um, and the literature would tell you the, we don't, we can't, if you put two clinicians on the same body, the chiros, and they try to determine, they're like, this is where the, uh, joint restriction or malposition, whatever you want to call it, uh, is the other one can do the same, you know, whole spiel and they won't come to the same conclusion. Like they're going to find two different findings and it, it's this like universally, nobody can agree. And so I was like, okay, we, we, we're not adjusting or quote unquote, fixing the same thing. So that's, we got a red flag there. Um, do these joint restrictions or malpositions even exist? Are they correlated to pain? And I just kept asking more and more and more questions. And to try and condense this a bit, it basically led me to the ultimate question of, do we need to be doing this? Do people need this? And if they don't, which my bias is that they don't, why are we telling them they do? And why are we communicating to them as a solution for their pain? Um, not even as a solution for their pain, but to point like cause as a, from a causality perspective, like this is the reason you hurt. I found this joint restriction with my magic fingers and uh, this is why you hurt and I'm going to correct it. Right. Why are we doing that? If we don't have a solid body of literature to suggest that that's even possible. Um, and so then I took that line of thinking and started to extrapolate it onto some of the other, some of the other boogeymen that are really popular in our profession. And by that, I would say um, upper and lower cross syndromes, like the postural syndromes, you know, rounded shoulders, uh, forward head, uh, anterior pelvic tilt, uh, knee valgus. Um, what else can we point to? Core stability, um, impinged shoulders. The list goes on like infinitely. And the more I kept looking, again, we go like the, in the beginning, I kept saying the more I would look, the more disappointed I got. It happened here too. 
And I would just keep asking the question, why are we telling people this um, if we don't have to? Because to me, we ask like, what, what does somebody want out of a doctor-patient interaction? Like, why did it come in? And it's because like, it's the same question. You know, like uh, a great question. Why don't you see a healthcare provider for a paper cut? Right. Cause it hurts really bad, but you don't go to a doctor for that. And you don't go because you know, you're going to be fine. Right. So then you ask the question, why are people seeing us? Because they don't know if they're going to be fine. They don't know what's going on. So they want that explanation. And for us to meet that, that need for explanation and clarity with an explanation that uh, is inherently damaging and points the person to this uh, idea that they're the broken machine that needs fixing. When we don't have to, that's the key. When we don't have, there's alternatives that are more helpful. That's what inspires me and kind of, and kind of makes me think that this job can be done, but way better. So that for me was a tipping point. It was just peeling back the layers one by one by one of, of all the biomechanical boogeymen that we pathologize. And we say, this is causal of pain when, when we don't have good literature to say that, and we don't have to say that. So then it now becomes, how do we, how do we better communicate? What, what other alternatives do we have? That's more inspiring to me. Yeah, man, that's awesome. And that's like the total pretending like we know, and this is, I'm going to dive in to a bunch of different things here, but this is like, this is my story to a T, you know, like when 16 years old, I, I was told that I had a herniated disc, um, never be able to like, basically was told never to deadlift again, never to pick heavy stuff up again, never to round my spine again. Um, uh-huh. and like basically pray I could play sports again. Like, and that was our solution. I was 16 years old. I had no fucking idea. Like this doctor comes in and tells me that it hurts yeah. and I can't move. I'm like, holy shit, like, wow, that's like, I can't do all these things now. And it's like, exactly your point of like, the solution was come see me more, stop doing these things less, you need me, you're like, you need this solution, you need this, you're fragile, yeah. um, you're probably gonna break again, this type of stuff. And I, I mean, literally, it wasn't until like, a couple of years ago, maybe that I was like, questions, I was like, really? I'm like, that doesn't make any sense, man. Like, there's, there's no way like evolutionary, like, we've survived so many of these things. Our ancestors have like gone through so much worse. And you're telling me I can't pick up something now. I can't round my, like I'd be dead. <laughs> like a thousand years ago, I'd be dead. Like my tribe, if I was the hunter and I had to feed my family, my tribe would be dead. You know, like these type of things, like doesn't make any sense. Like how can we continue to dive deep and into this? And this is where I want to, I want to ask you a little bit of like, cause I'm very much, I think maybe even a little bit too far of like, we don't need to be fixed. We, we are anti-fragile. Uh, we, a lot of times in our like profession, we are like buying people callous feet, like the things that they could do naturally by themselves, like we are trying to fix. How can we balance that out with using the chiropractor, using the doctor for our benefit, like things that they can actually do, things that you want to be able to do and like implement with our athletes? Like, how can you actually help them? Like, what's your alternate pathway to where it's not mm-hmm. just that athlete by themselves? Right. Well, I first I want to say that like, I fully agree. Like, I like to say we're adaptable until proven otherwise, right? So let's operate under the assumption of adaptability before we operate under the assumption of fragility. Um, leading with that and, go, and going that direction and trying to disprove that theory rather than going the opposite way, uh, you're, there's a lot more Rome, roads to Rome, so to speak, if we go that direction. So for me, like for the Cairo or for the PT or the strength coach or whoever, let's, let's, let's not pretend that we're not all trying to do the same 
thing because we are. It's there's not none of this is inherently different. The the value we offer, in my opinion, is in the advice we give. Um, it's not in our magic hands. It's not in any one intervention or treatment. It's in good info. Um, I I used to say, I used to say that. The, to be um, a Cairo PT, anyone who's in that position of, th- of, th- of authority. I think our most prominent role is that we're teachers first. I don't know that I fully believe that now. Um, I think I would say now that we are, we, we serve best if we are whoever that person needs us to be at that time. So if they need us to be a teacher at that time, then that's what we should be. If they need us to be more of a coach, or more of uh, just a set of eyes, then that's who we need to be. Um, but the ability to leverage good information and have a little bit of tact to meet somebody where they are at that time, that's to me, that's the sweet spot. And that's what I'm most trying to work on for myself right now because I'm not good at it by any means. Because um, my bias is, is the teacher thing. Like that's, that's the perspective that inspired me first. So it's hard for me to get away from that. I'm working on it. And the reason that I try to, that I say that I should probably try and get away from it a bit is because with that bias that, that we are teachers and that the information that we offer is the most valuable thing we can give, you can get a little too teachy. And sometimes, right? Like you can't, the false assumption we're under is with communication is that, is that it actually happened just because two people spoke, right? But you're making a lot of assumptions there that they understood you that your points made sense, that they came away from it with something, right? So just because words were exchanged, that didn't mean communication happened. But I didn't understand that well in the beginning when I first took on this, the doctor is the teacher perspective. So I would just talk, 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 talk. And in my mind, be like, oh, we're killing it right now. Like this is a huge, this perspective is going to be game changing for this person. Like, I can't believe they didn't know this before. This is so exciting that they know this now. Oh my God. And then to find out a week later that it didn't land, they didn't understand it. It wasn't the right time. I've even had like worst case scenario because let's, let's be, let's be honest here. When you're talking about a person in pain, the beliefs they have are going to be held pretty strongly because we're talking about their body one. And two, we're talking about their pain experience, which is something they kind of have to go through alone in the sense that it's entirely subjective and only they feel it. Like don't pretend like you feel it. So to, meet that subjective experience with a lot of explaining and a lot of new ideas that might contradict their prior understanding. You can get a lot of pushback there if you don't navigate that minefield well and you don't build up trust and rapport and a strong therapeutic alliance before doing that. So I've had a lot of instances like in my early stages of my internship where I would just try to impart really good info to a person who wasn't ready for it or to a person who was really hanging on to some older beliefs about their pain experience that were very helpful. And I tried to deprogram and the timing is just not right. And like, there were times where like some of the, some of the interactions were explosive. Like I, I, there's still a patient in my, in my prior internship who won't see me. Like I can't be in the room when my preceptor would work with that person because um, I rubbed them the wrong way so badly, even though my intentions were good. And I really felt like they needed that info at that time. They weren't ready. So that's why I'm kind of moving a little bit away from we're teachers because sometimes you don't, sometimes you shouldn't be the teacher. Sometimes it's, I think the right now, my perspective is getting closer to, we need to be what they need us to be. And knowing the literature and knowing communication, soft skills, those kinds of things, that's what allows you to do that. 
to be kind of the chameleon and sh- and and be who they need you to be in that time. Yeah, and like you said, the the kind of the the chameleon, and this is why I like talking to Kairos because, like we talked about before, and before we started recording, is like you guys are learning so much. You have the ability to wear so many different hats, and I think this dives into like what being a doctor kind of means to you, but like also what you're able to do, like all the different skill sets, like everything you're able to work with this client on, like what, what's kind of your overall approach to working with that client? Like, how do you, how do you not sell the poison, but how do you fix them? You know, how do you not sell the poison, but show them results other than just telling them these type of things? And how do you navigate all these areas that, because the chiropractor, you, you have all of these hats to wear. Yeah, that's hard because, okay. So that, that gets, this is where a lot of nuance kicks in for me, uh, especially. So I talk about, I talk about a lot of the time that, I want people, I think people deserve to have access to the information that we have, right? Um, I talk about that from the perspective that the patient deserves it, but I actually also talk about this a lot from the perspective that the new clinician uh, or coach deserves to know this stuff too. And, 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 the, and the doctor that's been practicing for 40 years. Because what happens is, okay, knowledge translation, this is a huge issue. Knowledge translation is not very efficient. Um, Cause we have like, that's, that's the thing I always say is people will get mad at me for trying to impart certain ideas um, that might seem combative or contradictory to, to prior understanding. And they'll say, well, you just, you know, you're biased, you're, you're, you just like your stuff and you, your perspectives, but understand that it's not my perspective, right? Like these aren't, I didn't come up with this stuff. I just communicate the, the information that I'm reading and what appears to be Closer to consensus levels statements from from the literature, right? So, so I didn't make this stuff up. I'm just a conduit. And the trouble that we have there is is communication of that info, that drip to to the the new to the new grad, to the person who's been siloed into doing the same thing for 20 years, and they haven't updated any of their priors um, to the patient. Like everybody needs this stuff. And so when we talk about uh, the clinician and like what's our role. We wear a lot of hats. Um, some of them don't have the most productive understanding of what our role can be. And some of them just don't know this information because they either haven't been exposed to it, haven't taken the time to consume it themselves, or just aren't grasping it. Because, and like, and why would that be, right? Well, this, this is a good talking point too. Why, why is knowledge translation so bad? Why is it so, why does it take so long? I think it's like, uh, takes like 20 years to translate 14% of the current day evidence. So like what's coming out this year in 2020, the papers now, which by the way, 2020 has been a great year, but as far as papers go, but what, what we're seeing is it'll take 20 years to get 14% of that information translated into practice. There's a massive lag time, right? Why is that? One, because it's time consuming. Two, reading papers isn't sexy. Unless you're me, I love it. Um, but three, we have at our disposal, we talked about the three-letter acronyms, right? Every continuing ed course you can take. Um, and, and this perception that by taking that weekend seminar, you're inherently a better provider, right? Um, but the trouble there is, what are, what are the weekend courses offering? Most of them, right? Speaking umbrella terms here. A lot of the time, it's, they give you a framework or a cookie-cutter type approach or an algorithm, like a, so something to follow right? Because clinically it's chaotic. So it's, it's natural to want that. It's natural to want a path to follow. Um, and if, if you're just anchoring yourself to evidence, 
and wanting to rely on that, you're having to face a lot of uncertainty, which as human beings, that's not something that we gravitate towards. Like we don't like uncertainty. We don't like not knowing. We want to know or at least have some level of ability to predict what's next. And these, from a marketing perspective, these three-letter courses, they offer that. Like they offer the algorithm. They say, if you see this, do this. If you see this, then you're probably going to see this, that kind of thing. And that's like a safety net for, for students, um, for the old clinician who's facing burnout. Like they can, they can anchor themselves to that and feel that comfort. But are all of those courses offering um, algorithms that are A, based on any evidence, and I would argue no, and B, um, an algorithm or a flow chart or, or a framework that allows you to be patient-centered and allows you to um, tailor whatever intervention you choose t- to the person. Unfortunately, most of them are not. And, and the evidence is what allows us to do that, to, to be patient-centered. Because it actually, the, the, the misconception is that following literature hamstrings you because it tells you, oh, you can't do this, and you can't do this, and this doesn't work. But that's not a good perspective. It tells you what our best guess is, but it also advocates for patient-centeredness. So it sets you free to tailor a lot of your interventions to the individual and lets you know like, hey, some of these things aren't that important. We don't have to be this rigid here, here, and here. It makes you a lot more versatile. So for the people that silo themselves into the three-letter weekend courses, I think that, that to me sucks because once you get that comfort level, like we know comfort is a, is a killer, right? For growth. Once you, once you get comfortable, some people are done growing right then and there. Like that, that can be it. So that sucks to me because there's a lot of really good info out there uh, that some people might never get as, as clinicians, as coaches, as, as patients. Um, and I think if they had it, right, it would be a lot more clear the type of role we could have. Uh, for a person, which again, to me right now is being whoever they need you to be at that time. I think the evidence lets you do that. And I, I think some of those weekend courses don't because that branching algorithm, that branching algorithm isn't telling you be who the person needs you to be. It's telling you to make them do 500 prone press-ups to help their back pain. Like how that's, it could be so much better than that. Well, and then I, I think I, I totally agree with this because I think the biggest thing as coaches, as clinicians, like you've said, like, is that ability to accept the uncertainty, you know, yeah. because the, the, the pressure of our job, the pressure of our role, the pressure of what we do is to have all the answers, you know, like yeah. to certainly have all the answers. That's what your title means. That's why people come to you. And yeah. when you start to gravitate towards thinking you have the, all the answers or just wanting to avoid the uncertainty of thinking or like understanding you don't have all the answers, which none of us do, like even, like even the best out there, like don't, then you, you have to accept that uncertainty of like your entire job is supposed to know, like is apparently like, you know, everything. That's why people come to you. And then you don't know everything. Uh, so why should people come to you? Why should people listen to that type of thing? And then you get stuck in that approach of like, it's like the, it's the worst possible thing of like, you don't know the answers and you're not looking for the answers because you think you know them or you, you want to push out that you know them, you know, like it's that it's where I see everything going wrong because again, feeling uncertain, feeling like you don't know, feeling like you have to continue to learn doesn't feel good. You know, like when somebody comes to you with a question and you have to look up, you have to continue to research that question. You're continuing to grow. It's like, this is one of the things like 
our athletes, something that I work with my athletes is like, they'll ask me like, well, why don't we do something like we did last year? Like uh, we did this last year. Like, why are we doing it this year? It's like, cause last year that was wrong. You know, like, I don't agree with that thought process anymore. I've dug deeper and I've continued to adapt that. And it's that ability to stay and stay with that understanding of that uncertainty of that. We don't understand what we don't understand. So let me, let me, let me sit there for one more second too, with, with uncertainty. So like, okay, I, I made the point earlier. Why do people come in? Like, why, why, why would somebody seek a healthcare provider? Right. And I think what it looks like is because they don't know what's happening and there's some level of concern and they don't feel like they can manage it on their own. So, so that knowing that puts you under the perception that you have to give some kind of answer. Right. So this is what's hard about Cairo or PT or somebody who sees pain complaints, because with pain, if you know the literature, you know, that 90, somewhere between 90 to 95%, and it might even be higher. That's kind of what it looks like to me as far as a trend. Um, 90 to 95% of the cases we see, if we just, let's just say low back pain, the source, right? The source of the pain is not identifiable. We don't have the ability clinically, even if we take an x-ray or an MRI, to tell you what the exact driver is. In 90 to 95% of cases, right? So how do you leverage that then? When somebody comes in and you're under the impression that they're expecting answers, this is the, this is the problem because somebody will take one look at that, especially as a student. And they'll say, well, that literature is useless to me because I need to give this person an answer right now. I think that's a misinterpretation though, because just because the literature tells you that you can't know, doesn't mean that you can't equip that person with really good info. You just need to know more peripheral type information to just be able to communicate the idea. So like if we stick with that example, right? If we stick with the example of low back pain and our inability as clinicians to identify a specific source. Okay. I can't tell you, so this is the narrative I usually use and I haven't had pushback on this yet because I think it makes sense to people and it's honest, right? We lead with a little bit of honesty. I'll tell somebody, okay, look, I can't, I can't tell you what's specifically causing your back pain, right? We can speculate all we want, but what I can tell you is what it's not. And I can tell you that it's going to get better because I know the literature on natural history and back pain of a benign source, which we, and we can determine if it's something serious or not. We can't say exactly what it is, but we can tell you if it's something that warrants an x-ray, a surgery, a medication, a cast, whatever. Right. So when we know it's not serious, again, 90 to 95% of the cases, it's not. Then we can say, I can tell you, I can't tell you what it is, but I can tell you it's going to get better whether we get treatment or not. And I can tell you that if the best course of action for you is to keep working, is to stay active, is to just try to be as healthy as you can, and then try to reconcile with um, some of the fears that you have around your back pain, some of the limitations you're feeling, that's what I'm for, right? Help you maintain a level of normalcy while you deal with this in a productive way that, and I'm not here to fix something. Why is that? Because I don't think we can say that something is inherently broken just because you feel pain. There might, there, I don't think there is anything to fix. I think I can just help you manage this because it's going to get better. I mean, that, that that's an incredible piece of, of evidence that we have that we don't leverage enough is, is the power of natural history. When we take into consideration back pain, like, and this is humbling for the clinician, especially if you're coming from a fix-it mindset, is that 
it's going to get better whether you do anything or not. And then also if you look at that and you, if you acknowledge that, you're going to have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, man, did that person get better because of the great back cracking I gave them or because of the perfect exercise prescription I gave them? Or did they get better because they were going to get better anyway? And I just happened to be there, right? Like that's, that's humbling. But to me, that's also extremely positive and tells you that you can be an optimist for this person and help them maintain a certain level of, of normalcy in the face of uncertainty, which like cycle, cycle that back around, right? They want an answer. You don't give them an answer, but you give them the reassurance they need to just keep going. That to me is a lot more powerful. And if we, give me one more second on this, guys. I think this last point is important. Um, if we consider what the opposite entails, if we went the opposite route, right? And we did point to one source and we pretended like we knew. Or we, you know, perception versus reality, we, it's pretty easy for us to convince ourselves that we know too, right? So we operate under the assumption that we've, we've identified the source of pain. Well, what, what are the implications of that, right? People take what healthcare providers say very seriously and they trust you. They trust you with their time, body, and money. And when you tell them with some level of certainty or the perception thereof that this is their problem, what happens in five years when they feel that? that similar sensation. They assume that it's that again, that it's rebroken, that it's re-damaged, re-irritated, whatever, that it's that same thing. And they're under the perception that this just keeps happening. Um, this thing, this structure that that uh, doctor identified for me, this is my problem. And this is like, it becomes a crutch, right? And it fuels this perception of no matter what I do, this structure in me does not have the integrity to meet the demand of my daily life. And it just feeds this narrative that we struggle with on a societal level of that we're susceptible, right? But the, the biggest problem there is that you didn't have to do that. Like you didn't have to perpetuate that cycle, but because you couldn't deal with uncertainty or because you just didn't know any better, you did it anyway, right? And it doesn't seem like a huge deal on a micro level, but add up a lot of those micros. And now all of a sudden the wheel keeps spinning and we get deeper into this problem of, of a lot of misinformation that doesn't help people deal with, um, with pain and disability. Yeah. Hell yeah. That, I mean, that's, that, that's everything that we talk about in the coaching world too. And it, it's, it's that like ego approach of coaching, the ego approach of, practicing chiropractic of like, again, you, you think you have the magic fingers. Like you think you have the magic program. You think you have the magic like exercise. And like you yeah. said, like 90% of the time it's, it's the environment and the knowledge that you give that athlete, that you give that, that person to go forward. And it, it's, it's kind of funny. The way it works is if you approach it in a way that you can't fix them, you suddenly start to fix them, you know, like you, you can't make them better. You, you can just set the environment up. You can just do these things. They suddenly start to get better. They start because they're right. learning like by themselves, they're pushing themselves. They're, they're entire starting to grow and take ownership of it themselves. So it's funny, like the different way, like if you think you can fix them, you think you have that magic fingers, you think you're doing the right things. The, those injuries start to come back up. The, 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 the performance starts to go down, you know, like they, they don't have the power themselves. So like, when you think you're doing one thing, you're actually doing the other thing. And then on the other spectrum of it, it's like, you take that hands-off approach. You're honest with them. It's like, I can't fix you. I don't have the magic fingers. I don't have the magic program. I'm going to give you the best knowledge I got, the, the best things that I got. We're going to make you fix yourself. And again, the, the reassurance of 
through time, you're going to get better. Like through time, if we continue to do this, you're, you're going to get better. You're going to continue to grow. And you, you, you have that other growth aspect of now they're starting to get better. They're starting to feel better. They're starting to take ownership of it. I think, yeah, I mean, it's truly like, I'll tell younger students all the time too. My favorite interactions, honest to God. And I would like, if you would have told me that this would be my perspective upon graduation at the beginning of our training for Cairo, I would have been stunned because I would have back then I would have been like, Oh, you know, I delivered the perfect adjustment paired with the best exercise program that's perfectly based to fix their dysfunction, whatever, you know, for me right now, my favorite interaction is somebody comes in to see me and they're worried and it's that whatever they're feeling is limiting them and stopping them from doing what they love. Um, be it working out or walking their dog or some kind of social thing, whatever, whatever it is, right. There's some kind of limitation and they're worried and they don't know what it means for them down the road. My favorite interactions are the ones where I can simply just tell the person that they're actually going to be okay. And they, the first course of action is that they should probably just get back to doing the things they want to do. Um, I've had interactions like that where we don't have to do anything else. I don't have to give you a program. I don't have to come up with some convoluted rehab circus act. Um, you know, you don't have to go buy a new mattress or your 15th pair of shoes. Um, and it's just really simple reassurance and reactivation. That's to me, that's the best. And, and the person loves it too, because they're like, Oh my God. Okay. Wait. So that this isn't that, this isn't that big of a deal. And I don't have to hold myself back. I can just go back to doing the things that I'm doing and say, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, you can like just giving that permission as a person of authority in that room. That's huge. Cause again, we're operating under the assumption. And I think the assumption is supported by a fair body of evidence. You're adaptable until proven otherwise. So prove to me that you're not before, before I try and do more. Right. Cause we haven't, we haven't exhausted that theory yet. So let's exhaust the theory. And then wherever you're not adaptable enough, let's try and create the environment that's going to allow you to be. But if we don't have to go there yet, I don't want to. Right. And then like that, that, that brings up a super interesting point to me. Like if you've ever dove into the, into the research or some people's work on the study of human resilience, what, so like this applies to when somebody comes in for a problem for the first time, like their first significant pain experience in their life. Right. If we take into consideration what we know about human resilience, one of the strongest predictors of whether or not somebody is resilient to some sort of stressor later in life is how they responded to it the first time, right? So if somebody comes in, like we got, it's a fork in the road here, right? If somebody comes in and, and they're very concerned and they're very limited and we come up with this big exhaustive plan with lots of treatment sessions and lots of exercises. And from a bird's eye view, it looks like this was a big deal that required a lot of intervention and a lot of help um, and a lot of work. There's the, there's the perception that, wow, this was a big deal. And next time something like this happens, it's probably going to take an even more exhaustive approach because it's going to be the second time and I'm going to be older then, right? Or we can go the opposite way, which I would say is the resilience path. Say, no, this actually wasn't that big of a deal. You can adapt to this and you're okay, right? Because then what does that mean down the road if they feel something similar? Well, I, I've been through this before and I just kind of work through it. 
that's resilience, right? That ability to look at that problem and say, I've been here. I know how to respond to it. It doesn't require a lot of focus, attention, or effort. I can go on living my life like that. The, the implication that that first encounter has for somebody, for somebody years down the road is a lot bigger than, than what some people will realize. Yeah. And there's so many parallels into the coaching world. And I think just in the way that we see things, because I like recently the, the coolest thing you talk about the coolest thing, like, and the best experience you have in your practice is when you're able to basically give them that freedom without doing anything, you know, like give them the yep. freedom to get back to their normal day. And now working in the performance sector where they're not coming in hurt, they're coming in just looking to get better. The coolest thing I see and like, I love doing is giving them the freedom. And I, I think you said the reassurance of, and the AOK to explore what their bodies can explore, you know? So like where you and I are the same exact approach, basically just starting with different levels of you're starting with that injured, hurt in quotation person. And I'm starting with the performance person. And now it's like, how can we give you the freedom to explore what your body can do? How can we put, continue to push you forward? Because again, in now in the performance sector, these athletes aren't hurt, but they've been trained for so long to avoid anything that can hurt them in quotations, you know, uh, like <laughs> yeah. the box jobs, like, Oh, this box jump's going to hurt me. The deadlift's going to hurt me. The roll's going to hurt me. The car I was like, what's not going to hurt you, dude. Like if, if like, look at, <laughs> look at your sport, you know, like I'm going to get fired up here, but like, look at your sport. Like, look at all the crazy things you're required to do in your sport. Like I promise you, if you, if we get over that fear and we get over that trained in fear. Cause you look at it and I know it's training. Cause you look at a kid and a kid on the playground will like jump off the most ridiculous things, do these crawls, do these rolls. They'll swing and jump off the swings. Like, Holy crap. Like that kid, like if you're talking, if that was like a natural fear, we should actually be scared of this guy. Those kids would never do that, but it, it's completely trained in by coaches and people through their lives. Now, how can we get that fear out of them? You know, like, and like yesterday it was a really good example of like, we were, these guys were want, wanted to do this swan dive over this box and roll out of it and do this. And it was super awesome. Like I was pumped about them doing that because four months ago when we started, we were doing cartwheels. And the first time I told him, one of the guys asked, well, I am not like really good at cartwheels. Like this might hurt my shoulder. And I was like, no, dude, like, like we'll have a progression regression. We'll be able to do things that'll help you with this, but that cartwheel is not going to hurt your shoulders. And now yesterday they're jumping on, it was like a four foot high jump and they were hitting a swan dive. Something that probably is a little dangerous in some regards. I was like, Holy crap, but they wanted to do it. They wanted to push forward. And it was like the same athlete, you know, like getting rid of that fear and allowing them to push their bodies to where their bodies can go. Yeah. Well, and, and like, this just makes me think too, like, and I, I, I always like giving this example because sometimes until it's given or, or if it is given, it helps people to understand how truly damning the opposite can be. Right. So, so the example I'd give is, and I've seen this, I've seen this a lot of times, actually, and it sucks. Um, like something as simple as gait, right. How you walk. Um, I've seen instances where an old, let's just say like an old, a little old lady, right? Um, somebody who she's in her seventies and we know that our older population, they need the physical activity more than anybody, not just for the physiologic reasons, um, but for social interaction, to break up their day, to see something other than their room or their, the inside of their house. And then also the benefits of, you know, hitting X amount of steps per day using their bodies. Cause we know it's, it's, it's not wear and tear. It's rest equals rest equals rust. Right. And if you want to be able to maintain your autonomy as you age, you need to be able to get up and move. So how do you get good at getting up and move? You get up and move. Right. 
But I've seen instances where somebody will come into a clinic, like let's say a 70 year old little old lady and somebody will analyze her gait and they'll tell her that she's got uh, some kind of whatever they decide is not okay with gates. I don't know. I don't really get into that whole game, but let's say for this lady, this clinician doesn't like that her gait has like her pelvis goes up and down, even though everyone's does and her legs circumducts instead of going straight, even though everyone's does like shit doesn't matter, but we'll say to this clinician, it mattered. And he told that lady that it mattered. Right. And then he goes one step further and blames her back pain on this imperfect by his standards, this imperfect gait that she has, right? And let's say that's like the extent of the communication on that. That lady comes back the next week, and I swear to God, I've seen this. And we'll ask, How, how's your activity levels? What did you, what did you do this past week? Where you, did you did you walk? Did you do some sit stands? Whatever. And she said, Oh no, I stopped walking. And we're like, Well, what? Why? She says, Oh, it's. I mean, I don't do it right. And you told me that the way that I walk has something to do with my back pain. So why would I keep doing it? If it's just, if it's just going to keep making my back hurt and I don't even do it correctly in the first place, then I should probably stop. And I watch those interactions and that it's just, imagine going to school for eight years to be this, this authority figure and to be somebody who can be a guide to really help somebody to a better life. And that's what you do. That sucks. I don't, I mean, like, I don't mean to tear anybody down who's really into gate analysis or anything. I'm not saying everybody does this, but if that is what, what someone does, that sucks, you know, cause now she's not walking and she thinks that she's the cause of her own problem, which is terrible, right? That's horrible. So I don't know, man, it's, it's the way we communicate. It's pretty important. Yeah. I'm, I'm 100% on that. I mean, that's, <laughs> you can even tell like the, the passion behind that. And I think it's, it's, kind of <laughs> you know, like, and the only reason, like, I, I, I relate to this so hard and I get passionate about this so hard because like I said, like I mentioned it, like I've lived it. And the only reason I got out of it is because I geek out about the human body because this is my job, because like I see it, you know, like there's, I was just thinking like, if I, if I took a different path, if I was an accountant and I had zero interest in my, in my body, in the physical human performance world, and I was told when I was 16, all these things, and I just continued my life that way, you know, there's so many people out there like that's, this isn't their job. Their job isn't human performance that they, they don't do the research on themselves because it's not their job. You know, somebody like us is telling them these things. Then they go their entire lives because they were told by that fig, like authority figure, you need me. I fix you. You're never going to be fine without me. You can't do these things, you know, and then you go your entire life through that. And it's just like, I, I, I understand why you're passionate about that. <laughs> but before we get into the rapid fire rounds and before we continue to kind of vent about some of these things, I'm interested in your perspective of taking your clinical experience and applying it to the performance world, applying it to these, the, the athletes that I've worked with. Um, maybe, maybe they have some nicks, like what, what's kind of your advice? What's kind of your approach to the performance world for the, the athletes listening to implement this kind of thought process, implement some of your ways that they can be doing and some of the things they can be doing to kind of help their performance from your clinical experience. Yeah. Um, I think my first piece of advice with that to them would be to tell them to listen to you. I think or pay attention to what, what Austin's saying. Um, and I, I, I only say that because I, I love um, 
some of the stuff you do with dynamic systems theory and, and gamification and um, movement variability rather than, um, you know, so much motor control type stuff and really exploring degrees of freedom rather than limitations. You want to, when you're looking for who you want to be your healthcare provider or you want to be your coach or performance coach or whatever. And I, and I say both in the same sentence, because I, th- I think in your email, I like the way you preface that we would talk about this. You, you said um, the clinic versus performance, and then you follow that up with, or, or do we need to even say verse? Is it the same? And I would argue it is the same, honestly, because, because what are we actually doing? Right? Like what is the job itself? It, if you boil it down and just tear away um, some of the things that quote unquote separate us, all the job is, is taking a person who has something they want, but don't know how to get there and just giving guidance and helping them get there. So in, in that sense, these are the same jobs, right? So as, a, as an athlete who doesn't know who to turn to, who to trust, I think a good approach is to, to look at the person and try and estimate for yourself, do they seem really focused on, on what people's limits are and what people need to be watching out for and what people need to be worried about? Or is this person focusing on your strengths and, and what makes you, um, what makes you a force just in life and what makes you, um, uniquely athletic or, 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 or what the skills you bring to the table, somebody who puts emphasis on that, that's who you want to work with. Because again, like you want to be able to trust your healthcare or your coach to be following an evidence-based approach. The evidence suggests like we have science on our side for this. This isn't just, we're not just blowing sunshine at people for the sake of doing it and making everyone feel good. Cause this is an optimistic and fun message. We have evidence for this. Like this is, it's backed by science. We can be this optimistic and not be quacks about it too. Like this is real, you know? Um, so you want somebody who, who, who comes at it from, from a perspective of, of abundance, right? Rather than limitation that the, the cornerstone being you're adaptable until proven otherwise. And then recognizing that we have the freedom to tailor everything we do around you as a person and around what your goals and your aspirations are. Like we get to do that because there aren't so many specifics that we must do. Like there aren't so many requirements, whether you're training somebody, it's like we talked about, does everybody need a barbell squat? No. Does everybody need a barbell deadlift? No. Right. It depends on what your goal is. It depends on where you're at in time on the spectrum of being in the beginning stages to reaching your goal. And a lot of other factors too: access to equipment, where you are, um, you know, support what people around you believe like, and if you're working with somebody who takes all of these things into account, then you've got a better chance of having somebody reach you where you're at and catalyze that ability to, to learn how to self-manage or to learn how to self-train, self-develop, all of these things, um, rather than somebody who believes in, in a rigid cookie cutter, um, it must be this way, um, all fits one size versus one size fits all, those kinds of perspectives. So I think... Just having an understanding of, of how much leeway we really have and then finding somebody who's looking to take advantage of that. That's the most important thing when you're, when you're leveraging who you want to involve yourself in, with, uh, whether it's performance or healthcare or 
if we can stop pretending that there's some kind of dichotomy there and just acknowledge that it's people dealing with movement related goals and that's all it is. Um, that's who I would be seeking out if I was a young athlete now, for sure. That's a, that freaking that's an awesome way to end the content piece before we get into rapid fire piece, because that's <laughs> the limits versus strengths is something that I think, again, it's just such a, such a cool way to look at it. And I think it's something that I do naturally without like, I, I, I like you, you made that connection in my brain a little bit. There's like, you look at a coach that says like, here are your limits. I'm going to fix your limits. And that's what they advertise. And it's always the same. Like whenever they do that, it's always the same, like cookie cutter approach to training, you know, like I'm going to show you your limits. I'm going to show you my, again, my magic fingers and how I can fix those limits and then it can go. And then there's the, the other side of it to where it's like, this is your strength. This is your weakness. The only thing I'm going to do, the only limit you have is the limit that was put onto you by somebody else, you know? And like, and that, I feel like that's my entire approach to training is like, I am not fixing any limit the athlete has. I'm fixing the limit other coaches have put on that athlete, other like in the environmental factors have put on that athlete. So I, I really, really like that approach. And it, it kind of just made a connection in my brain. I'm going to have to write about that after because I, I like that approach. <laughs> but now we can transition into the rapid fire rounds of the podcast. And these are kind of the questions I ask all my guests. And the first one is kind of your favorite books that you think the listeners can gotta, get a lot out of. I'll tell you what, uh, if I'm fully honest, I, I can't get out of my clinical head. So it, as far as books, I haven't been reading them. I, it's been papers. It's been nonstop research papers. So I guess with that, I would say maybe not so much for the, for the athletes or the patients who listen to this, but clinicians and, and coaches, if I can just be candid, because I'm stealing this from a, a level up podcast. I saw somebody quoted saying this, read the fucking research, like read it. It's there. Know it. Use it. It's your friend. It's not meant to be a crutch. It's not meant to hold you back. It's not meant to limit what you can do. If you have a good understanding of it and you start to get a really good, well-rounded approach built around the research, it actually frees you up a lot more and makes you a lot more versatile and dynamic and able to accept uncertainty and able to adapt to whoever's in front of you rather than making them adapt to your approach all the time. And you can and stop worrying about which continuing ed course you need and which three-letter acronym needs to come after your name because that shit doesn't matter. Just understand the science and then use it and, and use it and let it, let it help you be, again, let it help you be who the person in front of you needs you to be at that time because it can do that if you just understand it well enough. So read the damn research. <laughs> I love that. And this is something I wrote at the top of my actually note sheet because Mark made sure he's like, uh, make sure you ask him about the studies. So this is it's a good, really good segue. We're going to go a little bit longer on that rapid fire round question because yeah. what's your what's your approach to studies now? So like, you, you, what's your approach to which ones you read, um, what you take yeah. away from them, uh, one, how, how you're getting access to them, that type, type of stuff. So like a, a listener that's listening to this, listen, you talk about it, like, how would you suggest they go about this? And then how do you, like, what do you take away from these studies? What do you, how do you argue with these, not argue with studies, but like to where you're not taking it as gospel, like maybe you don't agree with that. Like what's kind of your approach there? Well, first of all, lead with the perspective of agnosticism, right? Um, because if you just get married to one thing, like you're going to come up empty eventually. You're not going to win forever. So just be open-minded. And if something, you know, if you really loved, if you're really attached to a certain approach and then bada bing, bada boom, three weeks later, uh, RCT comes out and completely shits on what you thought was really good, accept it and acknowledge that this is an opportunity for you to bulletproof yourself a little bit and be better. 
Um, the best way to start really getting exposure is Twitter, 100%. Every, at least for me in the, in the musculoskeletal um, pain and performance realm, right, uh, is on Twitter. All the best researchers are there. And the, the papers that are being published pop up there ASAP right away if you're following the right accounts. And then you get to watch um, the top researchers on the planet including the authors usually who wrote the paper, discuss in real time in front of you the findings. So you don't even have to be that good at like research interpretation or sometimes you don't even have to read the paper. You can just read the tweets about the paper if they're coming from the right people because they are literally debating the findings right in front of you. I would start with Twitter. I would start with following um, the researchers and, and this is, and that's hugely advantageous too, because so often people don't know who in their field is the best of the best. Like in every field, you should know who the top dog is and Twitter and, um, following these, these amazing authors and researchers allows you to know who it is because then you can reach out to them too. Like understand that their mission is to make practice better and to improve our efficiency and our cost effectiveness. And they want to help. Like it's their life's calling. They respond to emails. They respond to tweets. They're there like for you. So leverage that and, and use it. Talk to them. Build a relationship. Yeah, that's another thing. Like you don't know what kind of opportunities that can lead to for you clinically uh, to be involved with those types of people. So starting there. And then, I mean, you bookmark any of the papers that, that you see that you think can, can, guide, can guide clinical practice or your reasoning. But then also, um, then it comes down to building a community around you who who think the same way as far as valuing uh, an evidence-based approach, who you can discuss findings with too on a more micro level. Because if, if you're a lone wolf in it, it gets tough to interpret literature. So, I mean, I've got a group of probably like five, six, seven people that I, I talk with almost every day. Um, and they're sending me papers. I'm sending them papers. We're discussing findings. And then we discuss implementation. And I, like, I'll read a paper and I'll say straight up, how am I going to bring this into play tomorrow? And how, how is this going to help me to better manage the next case? Because um, you, you don't have to do it alone. Like understanding literature is a daunting task and it's not easy. We don't have to pretend like it is. And you don't have to pretend like you know what you're reading every time. Just have people you can rely on and bounce ideas off of and build a community around that. That's really helpful. And there's a lot of people who want to do it too. You just got to know where to look. Yeah, I, lo I absolutely love your approach of talking about Twitter um, because this is something I talk to people a lot all the time, especially in this field of is like there are podcasts, tweets and Instagram accounts of people where you legit get to watch the best minds in the world in our field. Talk, write, like post about yeah. everything like these are the, the Einsteins of our field posting completely free, like access to their brains. And there's so many people out there that don't take advantage of that. It, it blows my mind. It's like, it's, it's yeah. right in front of us. It's so easy to access. You can learn so much. I'm so sick and tired of everybody vilifying social media and saying it's the worst thing in the world. And it's the devil because of all the misinformation and time wasting. Dude, social media is the greatest thing on earth. It's the greatest. It's the greatest human invention. If you just use it to your advantage and leverage it the right way, you have all the, in, the best info on the planet at your fingertips. Like just use it. It's there for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we're going to get into a rabbit hole, a rapid fire round. We're, <laughs> we're 10 minutes into the first question, but yes, I 100% agree with you. Next yeah. question. Um, 
and this is how Mark kind of got you into our circle, but uh, who's a guest that you think we should have on the podcast? There's a few that I think would fit this scene really well. Uh, Craig, Craig Liebenson for sure, who, who is my mentor. And uh, now I guess I, I really, I'd consider him a colleague. He'll, the way we'll be set up is that once I get started, he'll kind of be, so he owns LA sport and spine out in LA. And then Ryan Chow, who also works first principles of movement um, and kind of leads the, the charge there owns reload in New York. And then when I open up, kind of act as a bit of like a sister clinic or a satellite clinic to those two and we'll all kind of um lean on each other so craig liebenson absolutely he's he's been my greatest inspiration in this space uh another really great that i would hold to the exact same regard as craig uh is jake harden jacob harden out of orlando um just incredible mind really builds his practice on the idea of self-management on the idea of of um, exploring the limits of our adaptability and, and what we're capable of and how far we can take better information. And then for you specifically, um, just to kind of tickle your own biases as far as um, uh, variability, gamification, dynamic systems, all that stuff, Luke Davies and Paul McCambridge, um, they, are, they run Back to Roots. They're a European Cairo group but they do a lot of really creative stuff that actually looks really similar to some of the things you put out on your, on your account. So Luke Davies and Paul McCambridge, uh, per two repentant is part of that as well, but they're back to roots health. They're all, they're really great. So that's definitely where I would be looking. Boom. That's an awesome list. Next question. And this is, uh, I think this is a good question for you. Um, cause you kind of mentioned a little bit how yesterday was your last internship day, but what's kind of next for you? What's that next step that you're looking forward to do? <laughs> The way I've been answering that lately is what's next for me is doing whatever the F I want and being really stoked about that. Cause I'm so sick and tired of being told what to do with patient management when I feel like I have a better idea <laughs> or a more patient centered idea. So I'm really excited to put into play the things that, that I think are important uh, in my own clinical setting. So I'll be in the twin cities <laughs> We're not totally, I'll be renting out of a gym. We're not totally set on location yet. We're getting close. Um, leading name choice. People can weigh in if they want to. I'm leaning towards Twin Cities Rehab and Performance. So that's most likely what it's going to be called. Not 100% sure yet. I want to hit the ground running in January. So I'll be practicing in the Twin Cities. Um, and I'll be doing a lot of remote work, telehealth, um, digital programming, because I think my approach is hundred uh, percent exactly as good remotely as it is in person. Cause I don't need to lay hands on you to get you better. I just need to guide you. Um, so I'll be doing a lot of that and yeah, that's pretty much it. Learning how to run a business, which sucks. Cause I hate, I hate learning about business, but it's a good opportunity to learn. So I, I'm figuring it out. <laughs> I'm in a very, very much of the same boat with you learning everything about business as we can, as we go forward. So I, yeah. I, I relate to that more than, you know, the, the, the last question of this podcast, and this is kind of when all the practicing stuff is over, when all this, um, all these talks are over every message that you want to get out there is, is out there, but what do you kind of want your legacy to be with all of this? Ooh, that's good. I don't think about that as often as I should. Um, I would say, you know, that makes me think of is there's a, there's a quote from Lao Tzu, who's a philosopher, like an ancient philosopher, like the founder of like Taoism, I think it is. Is that right? Do you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's right, but I I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. There's a quote from him, um, about leadership 
that says uh, a great, it's some, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to butcher this, but you'll get the gist. It's something about a great leader is someone who, um, who people aren't aware of his presence. So, but he still guides, right? So when they reach their goal, um, rather than saying like, he led us here, like it was him, he did, like he helped us do this. They just look at what they did and they say, we did this ourselves. Um, and that is to say for me, like, I don't, I don't want to be the patient's like savior. I want them to just learn from me so that they can be their own savior. Um, that's why I'm never going to make somebody call me doctor. That title is not appealing to me. I don't care for it. Um, I make fun of people who put a lot of stock into that. Um, no, I just, I, I want to be somebody who just get, who just gave good advice and, and help people realize all the stuff that they are capable of to the point where that once they get what they want, they're thinking about how they did it. Um, and they don't really put too much stock into anything that I did. That, that to me is probably most important. That's freaking awesome. We, we did it. We, we, we got through this podcast. I think we had some nice. awesome rabbit holes and some awesome parallels between the two fields. So thanks for being on. Yeah, buddy. I appreciate the opportunity. We'll have to, uh, we'll have to check in again a year from now. Hopefully I'm not saying the same shit. Hopefully I've got something better. <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.